Well, saints, it's good we could gather together, isn't it? Well, uh, saints, what we want to cover in this conference is three of the messages that we covered in Kansas City. And the title of that conference was The Spiritual Warfare of the Church as the New Man. The Spiritual Warfare of the Church as the New Man. And uh, in this conference, we had a particular realization, uh, even related to our testimonies after these meetings, that it's a very serious, weighty matter that we're covering in this conference, spiritual warfare. So we'd really like the leading ones, the responsible ones, the more mature ones among us, uh, the ones who have fought the spiritual warfare for a long time, a longer time, uh, to be free to come to the microphone and confirm this word. So we really, we really need this. I'll say something about it at the end of the message, too. Okay, now, uh, in this first message, we're going to cover something very particular, uh, and that is spiritual warfare in the Song of Songs. You may have wondered why we were singing these songs about loving the Lord Jesus. Well, we have to see, what we have to see, saints, and we've never really focused on this before, is that spiritual warfare is a major part of our love affair with the Lord Jesus. If we are loving the Lord Jesus, we will be engaged in spiritual warfare. Even our love for the Lord Jesus is spiritual warfare. We need to love him. There's a battle over our love for him. Are we going to love the self? Are we going to love pleasure? Are we going to love the world? Or are we going to be Jesus lovers? That's, that's, a, that's a battle. That's a battle. So when we come to Song of Songs, what we see is that the subject of the entire Bible is a romance between God and his chosen people. Now, don't you like to be in this romance this afternoon? It's good we can be in this romance on Saturday afternoon. Okay, this is also the secret of the entire universe, this romance between God and his people. And uh, in the Song of Songs crystallization study, um, Brother Lee gave four words to describe our relationship with the Lord, which we should never forget. Because I can never forget when we were with him, he said, the Lord gave me these words. The Lord gave me these words to describe our relationship with the Lord Jesus. Number one, it should be personal. It should be personal. We should pray, Lord, give me a personal relationship with you, Lord. And that's where we get the, where the, in Song of Songs 1, 1 through 4, it says, draw me, not draw us. Draw me. That's personal. Draw me. We will run after you. The me turns into a we. But you have to say, draw me, Lord. That's personal. Then you have the word affectionate, affectionate, where, where the seeker says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. That's affectionate. So the most affectionate thing that you can do, uh, you know, when, you, when, when the brothers marry someone, uh, what the saints are waiting for is not the, not the message so much. They're waiting for the brother to say, you may now kiss the bride. You may now kiss the bride. And uh, again, if you kiss the bride on, uh, on, on her nose or on her ear, you've started your marriage in a wrong way. Everybody's waiting for the kisses of his mouth, right? And so the way we do that, spiritually speaking, it's very interesting. The Greek word for worship is proskuneo. Proskuneo. Pros means toward, and kuneo means kiss. Which means that if we worship the Lord, we have the most intimate contact with him in our spirit by saying, Lord Jesus, I love you. And this way we kiss him with the, we let him kiss us with the kisses of his mouth. Okay, then the third, uh, the third word is private. Our relationship with the Lord should be private. Of course, our private relationship with the Lord is for the corporate body life. But if we don't have a private relationship with the Lord, we won't have a corporate body life substantively, in substance. So um, when it says the king brought me into his chambers, that's private. We should say, Lord, bring me into your chambers. And the king's chambers are our spirit. So that's spiritual. So we should say, Lord, as the king, I want you to bring me into your chambers. I want you to bring me into my spirit. So that's personal, affectionate, private, and spiritual. Now, if we look at the New Testament, uh, just very briefly, this is a brief introductory word here. 
Uh, in 1 Corinthians 2, 9, it says, Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has it come up in man's heart. The things that God has prepared for those who love him. Hallelujah, do you love him? Then it says, but God has revealed them to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God, even the depths of God. So, um, saints, when you say, Lord Jesus, I love you, with a turned heart and an exercised spirit, the Spirit does active research into Christ as the depths of God and reveals those depths of God to us in our spirit for our realization and participation. Now, at the end of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 16, 22, it says, uh, it says just the opposite of 1 Corinthians 2, 9. It says, woe to those who do not love the Lord Jesus. And it says, whoever doesn't love the Lord Jesus, let him be accursed, or let him be set apart to woe, W-O-E. So if we don't love the Lord, we're miserable, right? If we're loving the Lord this afternoon, we're happy, Right? Loving the Lord fills you with joy. Then if we want an affectionate relationship with the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5.14 says the love of Christ constrains us, that we would no longer live to ourselves, but to him who died for us and has been raised. So we need to pray every day, Lord, constrain me with your love, that I would no longer live to myself, but to you, the one who died for me and has been raised. And then private, uh, you have Matthew 6.6. 6. I love I love this verse very much. It says, "But you, when you pray, enter into your private room and pray to your Father who is in secret. No, enter into your private room and shut your door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret shall repay you. Shall repay you. So that's private. Then spiritual courses Romans eight four and six." Where it says that we walk, when we walk according to the Spirit, spontaneously we, we fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. And Romans 8, 6 says the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. So this is all personal, affectionate, private, and spiritual. You know, uh, saints, uh, I was reminded this afternoon, not this afternoon, early this morning, about the life study of Song of Songs. And uh, in the first paragraph, Brother Lee says something that's very touching. He says, at the beginning of this life study of Song of Songs, I would like to offer a word of appreciation and memorial of and an expression of gratitude to Brother Watchman Nee. The outline with all the headings and subtitles and the interpretation of figures in this present life study of Song of Songs are based on Brother Nee's particular study with a few co-workers in May 1935, in which I participated as one of not more than ten attendants in a hotel on a shore of Westlake of the city of Hangzhou, close to Shanghai. So he participated in a conference there of not more than ten people. Can you imagine that? Brother Nee released all these riches here in this book. Not more than ten people were there. And Brother Lee was one of those people. So this is what we're what we're getting into uh, today, even today, we're getting into this. Okay, now, uh, the entire Bible is consistent in speaking about one thing, and that is God's economy, God's economy. And the content of God's economy, in brief, is God falling in love with, with his chosen people. God falling in love with his chosen people. This is the subject of the entire Bible. Song of Songs is an abridged form of this romance, and the Bible is the entire revelation. Now, one day, God became a man to court man, to court man. This is incarnation. Incarnation was God's courtship of man. Uh, He courted, you know, King Solomon in this typology here, he courted a country girl. Now, if he were to come to her as this great king, he would scare her away, right? So he had to become a country man, lower himself down to become a country, quote, quote, a country man to reach this country girl. So uh, in the same way, uh, this is how he could court a country woman. Now, in the same way, the Lord made himself a man in incarnation so that he could court us and make us his queen. The church is the queen of Christ. 
So he came down to our level. He became a man. God became a man so that man might become God in life and nature, but not in the Godhead. We become his queen. We become his queen. Now, the subject of Song of Songs is the history of love in an excellent marriage, revealing the progressive experience of an individual believer's loving fellowship with Christ. So, you know, we have Ecclesiastes before this. We have Ecclesiastes and Song of Songs. Ecclesiastes begins this way, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And you can translate that, you can translate that vapor of vapors, futility of futilities, emptiness of emptinesses. Uh, That's what like is life apart from loving the Lord Jesus. It's vapor of vapors, it's emptiness of emptinesses, it's futility of futilities, it's vanity of vanities. But when you enter into a love relationship with the Lord, Lord Jesus, your life becomes the song of songs. And what is the Song of Songs? The Song of Songs is satisfaction of satisfactions. Satisfaction of satisfactions. Now we have four stages, which I would just like to um, state here, uh, on the living of a Christ seeker that's portrayed in Song of Songs. The first thing is this. She's attracted by Christ's love. She's charmed by his name. And she's captivated by his person to pursue him and be led into the church life. That's the first thing. Attracted by Christ's love, charmed by his name, and captivated by his person to pursue him and be led into the church life. Then two, she's called to remain in the cross that she may be freed from her introspective self for the fulfilling of her beloved's purpose concerning her in the the divine life. In the divine life. We need to be freed from our introspective self. You know, an introspective self is where you analyze yourself, where you look into yourself and you analyze yourself. And we never get encouraged doing that. We always get discouraged. Like we give a testimony, we say, okay, in this testimony time, I'm going to share one, two, and three. Then we get up and we forgot one, we forgot two, we shared five, six, and three. And then we sat down and we said, I'm never going to share again. I'm never, and that, what is that? That's introspection. That means you're looking at yourself. Don't look at yourself. Look away unto Jesus. Okay, now, the third aspect of living a Christ seeker is that she's called to live in ascension and even within the veil to experience the stronger cross that she may be one with God in her spirit even before rapture. Finally, this is a fourth aspect, she's conformed ultimately to be the wonderful Shulamite who has the duplication of Solomon is the greatest and ultimate figure of the New Jerusalem as the counterpart of Christ. Shulamite is the female word for Solomon. So we are becoming the Lord's Shulamite, his duplication, his counterpart, his reproduction. Finally, we need to see that if we love the Lord to the uttermost, we will engage in spiritual warfare for the defeat of God's enemy. This is what Song of Songs reveals to us. This is what Song of Songs reveals to us. Now, I would like to read to you, uh, let's see, maybe, maybe four verses from the scripture reading. Song of Songs 6-4 says, You are as beautiful, my love, as Terza." As lovely as Jerusalem, as terrible as an army with banners. So she's beautiful, she's lovely, and she's terrible. We need to be beautiful toward the Lord. We need to be lovely toward the Lord. That means we have Christ wrought into our being and expressed through our being as our beauty and our loveliness to him. But we also need to be terrible toward God's enemy. Toward God's enemy, we're terrible. That's spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare. Song of Songs 6.10 says, Who is this woman who looks forth like the dawn, as beautiful as the moon, as clear as the sun, as terrible as an army with banners? So again, you have an army with banners. You have a bridal army here in Song of Songs. Song of Songs 4.8, it says, Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. With me from Lebanon, come. So you have the bride and the army, the bridal army. Again, you have spiritual warfare put together with loving the Lord Jesus as our satisfaction 
of satisfactions. Now, Song of Songs 8, 5 through 6 says, Who is this who comes up from the wilderness leaning on her beloved? Leaning on her beloved. I'd like to read something to you about this. Let's see. Leaning on her her beloved. Uh, Okay, here it is, right here. Okay, I'll just say that much. Leaning on her beloved. Saints, we need to lean on Christ as our beloved. Lean on Christ as our beloved. If we're going to fight the spiritual warfare, lean on him. Lean on him. You know, in one training, uh, Brother Lee wasn't that well. And uh, there was something wrong with his legs for some inexplicable reason. It was really an attack of the enemy, we felt. And uh, I would go up to the top of the stairs and and get down below him like one or two stairs so that he could lean on me. He said, Brother Ed, you're so big and strong, I could put my whole weight on you. <laughs> he couldn't do that today, I don't think. I might just collapse, you know. But anyway, uh, uh, he was leaning upon me. This is the way we need to lean on the Lord, put our whole weight on him. And listen to what Brother Nee says here in such a beautiful way. He repeats this phrase, leaning upon her beloved. Leaning upon her beloved, she seems to be powerless and unable to walk. Leaning upon her beloved, she makes herself a burden for her beloved to carry. Leaning upon her beloved, it is as if the hollow of her thigh has been touched. Leaning upon her beloved, she seems to find herself pressed beyond measure, and this seems to last until the wilderness journey is over. Only the Lord can prepare us for the rapture, A trusting life is indispensable. We should trust in him helplessly until the Holy Spirit exclaims, Who is this that comes leaning upon her beloved? Isn't that beautiful? To me, that's very, very beautiful. We should trust in him helplessly. One time, Brother Nee said in another another place, he said, Two words are very precious to me. Two words are very precious to me. These two words are utterly helpless. Utterly helpless. Because we're, apart from the Lord, we're utterly helpless. We can't do anything apart from him. Now, uh, I'll read on here one more paragraph. Verse 6 says, this is in chapter 8, Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal on your arm, as a seal on your arm. For love is as strong as death, jealousy is as cruel as Sheol, its flashes are the flashes of fire, a flame of Jehovah. Now listen to what Watchman he says here. When she recalls her original condition, she cannot help but be filled with humility. She cannot help but consider her emptiness, the vanity of her experience, the undependability of her mind, and the futility of her pursuit. Her only hope is the Lord. She realizes that whether she can endure to the end does not depend on her own endurance but on the Lord's preservation. No spiritual perfection can sustain a person until the Lord's return. Everything depends on God and his preserving power. When she realizes this, she cannot help but exclaim, Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. The heart is the place of love, while the arm is the place of strength. Set me as permanently as a seal upon your heart, and as indelibly as a seal upon your arm. Just as the priests bore the Israelites upon their breasts and their shoulders, remember me constantly in your heart and sustain me with your arm. I know that I am weak and empty, and I am conscious of my powerlessness. Lord, I am a helpless person. If I try to preserve myself until your coming, it will only bring shame to your name and loss to myself. All my hopes are in your love and power. I loved you before, but I know the independability of that love. Now I look only to the love you have toward me. I held you once, and it seemed to be a powerful grip. But now I realize that even my strongest grip is just weakness. My trust is not in my holding power, but in your holding power. I dare not speak of my love to you any longer. I dare not speak of my grasping of you any longer. From this point on, everything depends on your strength and on your love. And on your love. 
So we need to, we need him to, we need to be set as a seal upon his heart of love and his arm of strength so that we, we can be preserved by the Lord until his coming, until the end. Okay, now let's come to the title of the message. And saints, again, uh, th- this is a, this is a, I hope we would be poor in, exercise to be poor in spirit in this meeting and pure in heart. To me, this is a new vista, a new vista in the, in the recovery. We've never looked at Song of Songs from the aspect of spiritual warfare. Uh, while I was driving down PCH one day, a long time ago, I saw this sign that said, Vista Point, Vista Point. And of course, there's lots of points you can stop there to look at the ocean. Uh, but uh, I hope we all pull into, into the divine and mystical realm of Vista Point this weekend. And see something new and fresh from the Lord in his economy. Now the title says, Fighting the Spiritual Warfare Through Living in Christ's Ascension as the New Creation in Resurrection to Become Christ's Duplication and Counterpart. Roman number one says, Your neck is like the Tower of David built for an armory. A thousand bucklers hang on it. All the shields of the mighty men. So bucklers are shields. Bucklers are small shields. This is an apposition here. A thousand bucklers hang on it, all the shields of the mighty men. Now A says, the next signifies the human will under God. The Lord considers the submission of our will a most beautiful thing. You remember in, uh, of course, throughout the Old Testament, especially in Exodus, he called the children of Israel a stiff-necked people meaning that their will was stubborn. Their will was stubborn. We don't want our neck to be like that. Uh, Okay, B says, The lover of Christ is beautiful in having a will that is submissive to Christ, neck like the Tower of David, and that is rich in in defending power, buckers and shields of the mighty men. In Song of Songs 110, the seeker has a string of jewels around her neck, string of jewels around her neck, which shows her beauty and her obedience to the transforming spirit. Her beauty and her obedience to the transforming spirit. Here, her neck is like the Tower of David for spiritual warfare. In Psalm 10, verse 3, Psalm 110, verse 3, uh, it says, Your people will offer themselves willingly to you in the day of your warfare, in the splendor of their consecration. Your young men will be to you like the dew, from the womb of the dawn. So, this is the day of warfare. Right? Believe it or not, saints, this meeting right here is a battle. It's a battle for us to see something new of the Lord. To enjoy something fresh of the Lord. So we need to exercise our spirit, turn our heart to the Lord to fight, cooperate with the Lord. So that he can fight for us and display the victory that he's already won. So it says, your people will offer themselves willingly in the day of your warfare. So we offer ourselves willingly to him in the day of his warfare. In the splendor of our consecration, our consecration is a splendor to the Lord. And it says, your young men will be to you like the dew from the womb of the dawn. This implies consecration and morning revival. This is how we, ha- we display our victory over the enemy. We have, a, we have a fresh consecration in him every day. And we have a morning revival where we get into the womb of the dawn and something fresh of Christ is conceived in our being and we actually become the dew to water Christ. So our time with the Lord in the morning isn't firstly for our satisfaction, it's for his satisfaction. We become the dew to water Christ. Now, um, one says under here, if we have a submissive will, a will that has been subdued like a flock of goats on a mountainside, Our will is expressed like the Tower of David that holds all kinds of weapons against the attacks. Then two says, The lover of Christ has come out of her natural will, and now she is standing in her resurrected will against the enemy. Three says, The more our will is subdued, the more we will be transformed. The more we will be transformed, and the more our will will be lined up with God's will. You know, in Romans 12, too, it says uh, that we're transformed by the renewing of the mind that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and well-pleasing and perfect. 
And the will of God here in Romans 12 is our practicing of the body life. Just what we're practicing here this afternoon. We are practicing the body life. That is God's will for us. In Hebrews 10, 5 through 10, it says, I come to do your will, O God. And if you look at the context of those verses, Christ came as the reality for all, as the reality of all the Old Testament sacrifices and offerings to become our enjoyment, to become our New Testament enjoyment. So, God's will is for us to enjoy Christ. Now, the third place that mentions God's will is Ephesians 1, 5, 9, and 11. Ephesians 1, verses 5, 9, and 11, which talks about the mystery of his will, the counsel of his will, and the good pleasure of his will. And the mystery of God's will, the counsel of God's will, and the good pleasure of God's will are the organic body of Christ. The organic body of Christ. So, if we're going to line our will up with God's will, we have to give ourselves to enjoy the Lord in the practical church life for the building up of the organic body of Christ. That is God's ultimate will in this universe, and that consummates in the new Jerusalem. Four says, first our will must be subdued, then it will be strong in resurrection and be like the Tower of David, the armory for the spiritual warfare. A says, the weapons for spiritual warfare are kept in our subdued and resurrected will. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5 says, Though we walk in the flesh, we, don't, we do not war according to flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not fleshly, but powerful before God for the overthrowing of strongholds. As we overthrow reasonings and every high thing rising up against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought under the obedience of Christ. Now B says, the bucklers and shields that protect us against the arrows of the enemy are kept in the tower of the subdued and resurrected will of the Lord's seeking one. So again, we shouldn't just leave this uh, on a shelf somewhere, but we should say, Lord, subdue and resurrect my will, Lord. I want my will to be subdued by you. I want my my will to be subdued with you as the content, a subdued and resurrected will. Now, Roman numeral 2 quotes Song of Songs 4.8. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. With me from Lebanon, come. Look from the top of Amana, from the top of Sinir and Hermon, from the lion's dens, from the leopard's mountains. Now, A says, the experience of Christ's death and resurrection has brought the seeking one into his ascension. And now she is on the mountaintop of Christ's ascension and is living in ascension. Saints, the fact is, you are in resurrection and ascension right now. That is the fact. Don't stand with your feelings. Stand with the facts in the Bible. You believe the Bible, right? Okay, now listen to what the Bible says. It says, He raised us up together with Him. That means when when He rose from the dead, He raised us up together with Him. And He seated us together with Him in the heavenlies, in Christ Jesus. So we're not just sitting here in a chair in Anaheim. We are seated together with Christ in the heavenlies. We are seated in ascension with him. Now B says, Christ calls his lover to live with him in his ascension as he had called her to remain in his cross. One says, Christ asks his lover as his bride to look with him from his ascension which is Lebanon, the highest place of the truth, Amana, and of Christ's victory in his fighting, Sinir, meaning soft armor, and Hermon, meaning destruction, and from the heavenly places of the enemies, the lion's dens and the leopard's mountains. Two says, when the lover of Christ is living in ascension, she and Christ are living in one condition, the condition of ascension, to be a couple. They are the same in life and nature, perfectly matching each other. C says, in in Christ's ascension is his victory. There is no more fighting, for the enemy has already been defeated. And we wear the soft armor to enjoy our victory in Christ. The position of prayer is ascension, that is, a heavenly position. Okay, now we come to Roman numeral 3. 
This says, through her living in Christ's ascension, as the new creation in resurrection, Christ's transformed bride becomes a garden for Christ's private enjoyment. Now, if we're going to fight the spiritual warfare, saints, we need to pray, Lord, make me a garden for your private enjoyment. Make me a garden for your private enjoyment. Song of Songs 4, 12 through 16 tells us this. It says, a garden enclosed is my sister, my bride, a spring shut up, a fountain sealed. Then it says, your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates with choicest fruit, henna with spikenard, spikenard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all the trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, with all the chief spices, a fountain in gardens, a well of living water, and streams from Lebanon. Then the seeker says this, she says, Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind. Blow upon my garden. Let its spices flow forth. Let my beloved come into his garden and eat his choicest fruit. So now she's not merely enjoying Christ. She's enjoying Christ so that she could be the enjoyment of Christ. How about that? She's enjoying Christ so she could be Christ's private garden for his satisfaction. So all the aspects of Christ that she's enjoying, she is now growing. She's now growing those aspects of Christ in her being. She's now producing those aspects of Christ in her being for his private enjoyment. So all these riches of Christ flow out from what the overcomers are and flow out from where the overcomers are. Now she says something very interesting here, and I read this. She says, Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind, and blow upon my garden, let its spices flow forth. So in our environment, the Lord sends the north wind sometimes. He sends the south wind other times, so that the spices in our being of Christ would flow forth and give forth the fragrance of Christ to those around us. You know, um, we like to say, Awake, O south wind, and come, O south wind. We don't say, awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind. We just like the south wind. Now, why is that? Because the north wind is cold, harsh, and biting. The wind from the north is cold, it's harsh, it's biting, it's difficult, a difficult environment. The south wind is, uh, is warm, pleasant, and soothing, and refreshing. So we, don't, we, don't, we like the south wind. We like to say, awake, O south wind, and come, O south wind. But we don't say... Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind. But we need both kinds of environment to train us to live Christ, enjoy Christ, express Christ, and give forth the fragrance of Christ in any kind of environment, in any kind of situation, and in any kind of circumstance. Now, Roman numeral 4 says, When the overcoming lover of Christ becomes one with God to be God's dwelling place, In the eyes of God, she is beautiful as Terza and as lovely as Jerusalem. However, to the enemy, she is as terrible as an army with banners. Terza was the place of the king's palace in Israel. So it was a very beautiful place, a very beautiful place. It was the capital city of the kings of Israel. A says, the lover of Christ is as beautiful and comely before the Lord, as beautiful and comely before the Lord, as solid as the heavenly city, and as serene as the sanctuary. At the same time, she displays the glory of her victory before the enemy and the world. One says, weapons are the most important thing to an army in battle, but unfurled banners signify the glory of victory, signifying the glory of victory are the most important thing in victory. Two says, banners indicate a readiness to fight, and are also a sign that the victory has been won. B goes on to say, A life within the veil is not only a life before the Lord, but also a life before the enemy. Before the enemy. So we need to live a life within the veil, within our spirit, that's not only before the Lord, but before God's enemy. And when we pray, um, no matter for who or whom we're praying, we have to pray towards God's interests on this earth. Like 1 Kings 8.48, when Solomon was praying, he said, when we pray, we need to pray toward the holy land, the holy city, and the holy temple, which signify God's interests on this earth. The holy land 
signifies the all-inclusive Christ for our enjoyment. Uh, the holy city signifies the church as the kingdom of God for his representation and dominion. And uh, the holy temple signifies the church as the house of God for his expression and his rest and his satisfaction. So uh, whenever we pray for somebody, whenever we pray for some matter, it should, it should always be aimed at, not at that person or that matter, but aimed at God's interests on this earth. Aimed at the holy land, the holy city, and the holy temple, which is actually Christ and the church as God's interests on this earth. One says, God has no intention that the lovers of Christ possess the heavenly beauty without possessing a warring nature. Two says, the overcoming lover of Christ not only has a future that is full of hope and a life that is absolutely heavenly, but she also is a victor who constantly triumphs in her victory. C says, the lovers of Christ should be lovable and terrible at the same time. Are you lovable or terrible? You have to say lovable, terrible. I'm lovable and terrible at the same time. However, listen to this. Many believers have lost their loveliness before the Lord and their terribleness before the enemy. We don't want to lose this. D says, the building of God is always an army. When we become a city to the Lord, we are an army to the enemy. One says, building cannot be separated from spiritual warfare. When it, wherever the building is, there is the battle. And if you read Nehemiah 4, you can see this very clearly. God's enemies, as soon as they started the building of, of, the, of, the, of, the, uh, of the, uh, the city and the wall especially, but of the temple, the city and the wall, God's enemies rose up, rose up. You know, I couldn't understand. Uh, it, it was inexplicable, inexplicable to me. Before I got saved, I was a very likable person to people. After I got saved, people began not to like me. And I couldn't understand that. I'm, why, why wouldn't you like me? I'm, I'm, I'm the happiest person I've ever been. You know what I mean? But it, it was just the enemy. It's just illogical. God's enemies rise up when you get saved. Then when you come in the church, church life... God's enemy rises up even more to oppose you because he knows that the builded church is the preparation of the bride, is the coming in of the kingdom, and is the spiritual warfare that will defeat God's enemy to bring him back to this earth a second time. So it's not a small thing to be in God's building and to be in the church life. Now, uh, because of God's enemy, uh, Nehemiah... It says, we pray to our God, and because of them, we set a watch against them day and night. Day and night. I, I like what he says here. It says, it says this. When I saw the situation, I rose up and said to the nobles and the rulers and the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the great and awesome Lord, and fight for your brothers, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your houses. Saints, we need to fight for one another. We need to fight for one another. We can't afford... One brother said this one time. I can never forget this. We, we had a situation going on that wasn't so positive, and uh, it, it would be easy to get down in that situation, you know, as, as leading brothers. But this brother came into our fellowship, and he said, Brothers, we can't afford to be down. What about the saints? What about the saints? We have to enjoy the Lord for the sake of the saints. That should be our attitude. We have to fight for one another by loving him and by enjoying him. Okay, then it says, Those who built the wall and those who carried burdens took the loads with one hand doing the work and with the other hand fighting a we- holding a weapon. So one hand did the work, the other hand they fought with a weapon. You see what I mean? So they, they had the building work and the weapon for warfare go hand in hand, hand in hand. Okay, I'll just say that much about that. But you could read this whole chapter later, Nehemiah 4. Two, fighting always accompanies the building, and the building always brings in the victory in the battle. Always brings in the victory in the battle. Three says, this is the consummation of the Christian life. 
The uttermost completion that the seeking lover of Christ can attain is to be a city as an army. And he says, a terrible army signifies the Lord's overcomers, signifies that the Lord's overcomers terrify God's enemy, Satan. One says, Satan is afraid of only one kind of people, those who do not love their soul life. So we need to pray, Lord, make me a person who loves you supremely and doesn't love my soul life. I think this is a marvelous display this afternoon that we're not loving our soul life. We could be doing a lot of things on Saturday afternoon, right? But we're here loving the Lord, pursuing the Lord, enjoying the Lord, declaring to the Lord and to the enemy that we do not love our soul life. We love the Lord Jesus. Okay, two says, the enemy is terrified of Bethel, the house of God. These verses in Genesis 35 show us this. Three says, the enemy is frightened by the church that is built up as the city of God. That is built up as the city of God. You know, in Nehemiah 6, it says that after the building of the wall was completed, it says, when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations that surrounded us were afraid and fell very low in their own eyes, for they knew that this work was done with the help of our God. Even the enemies testified. That this work was done with the help of their God. Okay, in Psalm 102, 12 through 16, it says, But you, O Jehovah, abide forever, and your memorial is from generation to generation. You will rise and have compassion on Zion, for it is time to be gracious to her. The appointed time has come. For your servants take pleasure in her stones and show favor to her dust. To, to, uh, for your servants to take pleasure in her stones, the stones signify the believers. First Peter 2.5 says, You also as living stones. So to take pleasure in her stones is to take pleasure in the believers. To show favor to her dust, to her dust is to show favor to the ground of the church, the genuine ground of oneness. The dust there is the, signifies the ground of the church, the genuine ground of oneness. Okay, 4 says, the demons and the evil angels are terrified of the one new man created by Christ on the cross. And saints, remember, uh, remember that with our joy and our enjoyment of Christ, there are, there are four levels of our enjoyment of Christ. There's a joy of salvation. There's a joy of salvation when we got saved. We were full of joy. Uh, there's the joy of the church life. When we came in the church life, we were full of joy. Uh, there's the joy of the body life. When we, when we started to enter into the body life in the church life, we entered into another level of joy. But then there's a the fourth level of joy. And that's the joy of the one new man. And that's the joy that we want to be in. We want to be in the joy of the one new man. And the demons and the evil angels are terrified of the one new man created by Christ on the cross. Five says, Satan is not afraid of individualistic Christians, even if they number in the thousands. But he's, a, he's terrified of the church as the body of Christ, the corporate warrior, fighting against him and his kingdom. Then Roman numeral five says, on the day of his wedding, Christ will marry those who have been fighting the battle against God's enemy for years. That is, Christ will marry the overcomers who have already overcome the evil one. A says, when Christ comes to fight against Antichrist and his army, he will come as the Son of Man. And as the Son of Man, he will need a counterpart to match him and complete him. This counterpart will be his bride. One says, eventually the overcomers will be a bride collectively to marry Christ. After their wedding, this bride will become an army to fight alongside, alongside Christ, her husband, to defeat Antichrist and his armies. Two says, when Christ the bridegroom sees that we have reached maturity, he will marry the bride and then come with her to defeat Antichrist and his army and to terminate human government, and to terminate human government. Uh, 
Of course, in Daniel 2, we know that Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and uh, he asked the wise men in his kingdom to interpret that dream for him. And the wise men and the conjurers, they said, tell us the dream, and we'll interpret the dream for you. He said, no, no, no. You have to tell me the dream and interpret the dream. And they said, no one can do this. Who can tell you what you dreamt? You know, he forgot what he dreamt. But it was so frightening to him that he, that he wanted to know what he dreamt and the interpretation of it. Well, this word came to Daniel and Daniel's three companions. Praise the Lord for companions. And his companions were Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Those are their Hebrew names. Very significant. And uh, they prayed. And as a result, Daniel received a vision of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, a great human image. And this great human image, you know, without getting into the details, it shows human government from the time of Babylon up until the present time. So you have, uh, you have Babel, and you go all the way back to Babylon with Nimrod. Then you have Medo-Persia, the government of Medo-Persia. Then you have the Roman Empire. And then you have uh, the feet of this image are part clay and part iron, which signifies autocracy, Mingle with democracy. Mingle with democracy. Now that's where we are in human history. We're not at the head of this image. We're at the feet of this image. That means any day, Christ could come back as the stone cut out without hands and smite this human image on its feet to where it becomes summer. uh, It becomes, uh, well, let me read it to you. It says, they became like like chaff from the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. So Christ comes and smites his human image, no trace of human government is found, and the stone that strikes the image becomes a great mountain that fills the whole earth. Okay, so so 2 says... We read this already. I'll read it again. When Christ the bridegroom sees that we have reached maturity, he will marry the bride and then come with her to defeat Antichrist and his army and to terminate human government. B says the overcomers who constitute the bride of Christ fight the battle against all the enemies of God and defeat them and defeat them. Saints, we need to pray simple prayers every day. Lord, make me an overcomer, Lord. Or, Lord, make me a part of your overcoming bride. This is why the Lord brought us this way. Not to, just, not to just be in the church. It's wonderful to be in the church. But it's to be an overcomer in the church. To be an overcomer in the church. Now, one says the overcomers fight against the self, the inward adversary, and the most difficult foe, slaying it by the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Two says the overcomers resist and defeat the principle of Antichrist and characteristics of Antichrist. Now, Antichrist, the word anti there, or the, the prefix anti, means against or instead of. Which means to be in the principle of Antichrist means you are, the, you are in the principle of being against Christ or instead of Christ. Christ means the anointed one. The word Christ means the anointed one. Uh, we, we just don't have the anointed one living in our spirit. We have the anointing living in our spirit. The anointing living in our spirit, according to 1 John 2.27. This is the moving, working, and saturating of the indwelling compound spirit in our spirit. So, if we're in the principle of antichrist, that means we're anti the anointing. That means we're against, we're instead of the indwelling, saturating moving and working of the indwelling compound spirit in our spirit. This means that we could, we could, it's possible for us to have very good behavior, but that good behavior can be a substitute for Christ. It, it, it could be something in replacement of Christ. You see, we, our goodness, maybe we're just good people, and we would be good apart from Christ. Well, that goodness can replace Christ. We want our goodness to be Christ. We don't want to be in the principle of Antichrist in anything, in anything, whether it's good behavior or whatever kind of behavior it is. Now, uh, in, in 1 John 3, 4, 
Well, in, in 2 Thessalonians 3, let me say this first. The Antichrist, the Antichrist, he's the man of lawlessness, the man of lawlessness. 1 John 3, 4 says, sin is lawlessness. So he's the man of sin. He's the man of sin. So to live in the principle of Antichrist is to live is, is to live uh, entirely against the principle of God's ruling over man. It means you live against the, God, God's principle of ruling in man and ruling over man. So we, we need to pray, Lord, save me from living according to the principle of Antichrist. Now, three says, the overcomers wore the good warfare against the different teachings and to carry out God's economy. So we need to war the good warfare against different teachings. That's why we're talking about God's economy in this session. We are warring the good warfare against different teachings. What is God's economy? In brief, it is God falling in love with his chosen people. It is God becoming a man to court man, that man might become God, to become God's queen in life and nature, but not in the Godhead. Okay, four says, the overcomers engage in the, war li- in the warfare of life against death and reign in life over death. Five says, the overcomers conquer the destructive satanic chaos and triumph in the constructive divine economy. Instead of being delivered out of the present chaos, they conquer the chaos. We like to be delivered out of the present chaos, Right? If we were in the seven churches in Asia and we were in Thyatira, we would say, I'm migrating to Philadelphia. Uh, But the Lord doesn't want you to migrate. He wants you to overcome the chaos where you are, right? So instead of being delivered out of the present chaos, they conquer the chaos by the process and consummated triune God as the all-sufficient grace. Now, Roman numeral 6 says, in the maturity of Christ's life, the lover of Christ becomes the Shulamite, signifying that she has become the reproduction and duplication of Christ to match him for their marriage. I like what the, song, like what the seeker says in the last two verses of Song of Songs. She says, oh, you who dwell in the gardens. All of us are the Lord's gardens. He dwells in us as his gardens. It says, your companions, listen for your voice. Let me hear it. Every day we should say, Lord, let me hear your voice today, Lord. I want to hear your voice in this meeting, Lord Jesus. Then it says, make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young heart upon the mountains of spices. This is, this is to, for the Lord to come back in the power of his resurrection to set up his sweet and beautiful kingdom on this earth. How does he gain his kingdom? He gains his kingdom by his speaking to us. By his speaking to us. Now A says, to say that we are the same as God and the Godhead is a great blasphemy. But if we say that we cannot be the same as God in life, nature, expression, and function, this is unbelief. The Bible tells us repeatedly that God's intention is to be one with us and to make us one with him. B says the Shudamite is likened to the dance of two camps or two armies. In Hebrew, this is Mahanaim, in the sight of God. After Jacob saw the angels of God, the two armies of God, he named the place where he was Mahanaim and divided his wives, children, and possession into two armies. So here, here's the circumstance here. J- Jacob was about to confront Esau, and he was afraid of what Esau would do to him. Because he stole Esau's birthright, and he was afraid of what Esau would do to him. Well, that night, he, he, he had a dream, and he saw the angels of God. And these angels of God were divided into two camps, or two armies. So what Jacob did was, whether he should have done this, I don't know, but I'm glad he did, or we wouldn't have this picture. Uh, he divided his camp into two, quote, quote, armies. Now, what are these armies composed of? His wives, his children, his young goats, his young sheep, all the young ones, all the weak ones. These are, the, these are his two armies. And his, his thinking is that if they attack one, quote, quote, army, the other army can get away. 
You see, this is his thinking. But what does this mean? Okay, okay, what does this mean? Now one says, the spiritual significance of the two armies is the strong testimony that we more than conquer. We super overcome through him who loved us, according to the principle of the body of Christ. Where it says we more than conquer, in the Greek language it's very strong. It says we super overcome through him who loved us. Two says, God does not want those who are strong in themselves. He wants only the feeble ones, the weaker ones, the women and the children. Saints, he doesn't want those who are strong in themselves. He wants the feeble ones, the weaker ones. How many of you qualify to be in this army? (laughs) Me too. I'm a feeble one. I'm a weaker one. So you qualify. If you're so strong and you're so powerful, you're disqualified from the army. In 1 Corinthians 1, 26-28, Paul says, Consider your calling, brothers, that there are not many wise according to flesh, not many powerful, not many well-born. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world that he might shame those who are wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world that he might shame the things that are strong. And the low-born things of the world and the despised things has God chosen, things which are not, N-O-T, that he might bring to naught, N-O-U-G-H-T, the things which are. So he chose the things which are not, N-O-T. We're a bunch of knots, N-O-T. That he might bring to naught, bring to nothing, the things that are. Now three says, God needs a people who are one with him. A people who are submissive to him, signified by the plated hair, and obedient to him with a flexible will, signified by the neck with strings of jewels. You know, in Song of Songs 1, uh, verses 10 and 11, it, uh, it shows that the loving seeker of the Lord, she has a neck with strings of jewels, and she has plated hair. It says, we will make you plates of gold with studs of silver. That means her hair is plated with uh, plates of gold. Can you imagine that? Plates of gold in her hair, and those plates of gold are fastened by studs of silver. So what you have here is gold, silver, and precious stones, which is the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. She's adorned with the triune God as her beauty. So we need to be submissive to him, signified by the plated hair, and obedient to him with a flexible will, signified by the neck with strings of jewels. Four says, those who are kind of worthy to be the overcomers will be the weaker ones who depend on the Lord. In Revelation 3.8, when the Lord is writing the church in Philadelphia, um, it's very significant that he says, you have a little power. To our concept, he should tell those in Philadelphia, you have a lot of power. You're the best church among all these seven churches. You have a lot of power. But he said, you have a little power, which means this. That what pleases the Lord is not our doing much for him, but our doing our best for him with what we have. We just have to do our best for him with what we have. This is to have a little power. Five says, when we consider how to arrive at the highest peak of the divine revelation, we should not trust in ourselves, but depend on the Lord as love, power, and mercy to make us vessels of mercy, honor, and glory. And again, we need to be those who are leaning upon our beloved, leaning upon our beloved. We need to be those who tell the Lord, Lord, set me as a seal on your arm of strength and power and on your heart of love, Lord. Set me as a seal on your arm, on your heart, and set me as a seal on your arm. Now, um, now it's just about time for you to prophesy. Uh, you know, in Ezekiel 37.10, uh, this is a chapter on Ezekiel prophesying to the dry bones. And uh, he says, I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them. So the way for breath to come into dry bones is for us to prophesy. And they lived and stood up upon their feet an exceedingly great army. Now, saints, prophesying makes you an overcomer. We would put it in reverse. Uh, uh, to be an overcomer, 
I need to prophesy. Well, that's true, but prophesying makes you an overcomer. So you need to prophesy to be an overcomer. And prophesying is the function of the overcomers because prophesying, he who prophesies builds up the church, according to 1 Corinthians 14, 4b. The building up of the church is the preparation of the bride. The preparation of the bride is the bringing forth of the one new man. The bringing forth of one new man is the ushering in of God's kingdom so that he can reign forever and ever in this universe. Okay, now, uh, related to the testimonies, uh, I'll stop here. Uh, Some brothers will direct us how to give the testimonies after we have a little bit of prayer. But I would like to do something special in this meeting. Um, uh, Maybe for the testimonies, just in this one meeting, let's have those who are 30 and older testify. I see some brothers here. They all look 30 and over. Uh, <laughs> right? If you're 30, if you're, if you're 29, you can't testify in this meeting. Okay? You're 28, 27, you, you wait for another meeting. But I want you to pray about testifying, those who are 30 and over. Okay? Uh, and what we'll do is we'll have some prayer, and then some brothers will come up and direct our, our prophesying. Now let's pray uh, two by two before we share it with one another.